Hey guys, what's up? It is week 141 and I got a bunch of reviews for you. Not so many new releases. I don't think any new releases really this time, except maybe some streaming stuff. Um, I uh, kind of wanted to do a correction beforehand. Uh, it's not really a correction, but I wanted to give uh, a mention that last week I reviewed Beware My Brethren and I wanted to mention that Sam Deacon does do a, uh audio commentary on that and I did listen to that and that was a spectacular commentary. She always does great work. Uh, she also has a great podcast called Daughters of Darkness with Kat Ellinger. So uh, let's hop into the first review. Um, the first one is from Kina Lorber, one of my favorite companies, and this is The Brinks Job which uh, is a movie that I actually had on DVD, but I never bothered watching. I picked it up because it was directed by William Friedkin in 1978, and that interested me. But uh, more so, the cast interested me. Um, it stars Peter Falk, Peter uh, Boyle, uh, Paul Servino, geez, Gina Rollins. There's a couple other names, but the the one that really caught my interest was War Notes. Um, like I said, I'm a big fan of War Notes. I think he's an underrated actor, but just that, uh, that whole cast together, just uh, Alan Garfield also. So I was like, that's a spectacular cast. It's based on a true story um, about a group of criminals in like 1950, even though the story starts before that, to, so you kind of introduce uh, the characters. But uh, 1950 decide to rob a Brinks. Um, you know, Brinks is the one basically security company that takes the money from payroll, yada, yada, yada. You've seen the trucks and everything around. But uh, what happens is Peter Falk being this kind of like really famous kind of criminal that robbed two bit kind of, to be honest, very famous in his neighborhood though. And almost idolized to a certain extent, um, you know, he notices that Brinks has terrible security. And uh, it's all basically a facade, none of it's true. So he gets together this whole group of guys. It's like a ragtag group of people. One is a, um, a bookie who's played by Paul Servino. One is his brother-in-law, Alan Garfield's kind of the doofus of the group. And then we have Warren Oates, who's like a military guy, who's uh, you know also one of the best safe crackers around. We have one of his Navy buddies, uh, a, another guy that he's been running around with, and Peter Boyle, who basically is kind of a bigger kind of crime guy in the area, and he can launder money and stuff like that. So they all kind of get together and decide to pull this uh, job. It is a comedy caper, so there's like jokes and humor. It's not completely over-the-top humor, although there is some sight gags that would suggest so. I feel like a lot of the dialogue is funny but realistic, them playing kind of jokes on each other, them getting on each other's nerves, stuff like that. I think it really works well. And uh, this being based on a true story, it ends in a, you know, how I've never actually read the story, so I didn't know exactly how it was going to end. I didn't know if it was going to get violent or where it was going to go, so I won't get into that. But uh, the performances are tremendous. Peter Falk is a guy I've only you know known from TV as a kid in a couple movies here and there. A Woman Under the Influence by John Cassavetes, who's spectacular. That's a spectacular film. Great performance by him. And he actually is married to Gina Rollins in this one as well. And I believe he was in that one. She starred in that as well. <laughs> and if I'm not mistaken, Gina Rollins was John Cassavetes' real wife. I think they were in a relationship. They probably think they were married. But regardless, uh, you know, it's nice seeing them together again, although her role is a little small. Uh, Peter Boyle is, is solid. He's kind of a jerk. But uh, Paul Servino and Warnos are the ones, besides Falk, who stood out to me. And Al Garfield. Their dialogue is, is great. And Warnos gets a chance to kind of flex his um, emotional uh, muscle in here in acting in, in a scene that uh, gets tears in his eyes and everything. And, I, I was, and you get to see him kind of crack. And I thought that was tremendous. Um, 
um, all in all, it's a very entertaining movie, very funny, very well directed, very well made. The set design's great. It really looks like, you know, the 30s all the way to the 50s because it kind of takes place during that point. Um, you know, it starts in like 38 and goes all the way to, you know, any um, all the way to like the, the robbery and afterwards, actually. And uh, the FBI gets involved and there's a, there's a sense of really funny irony um, in this that they spent, you know, $50 million to catch these guys uh, or try to catch these guys and the robbery was only for a couple million dollars so it's like yeah that sounds about right how these things work but um you know it's vastly entertaining like i said it's shot really well it looked great kino did an amazing job on the remaster here i was amazed how it looked um and like i was also surprised at you know like how genuine it felt i don't know how genuine it actually was it wasn't born in the 50s but from stills and other films that are considered genuine it looked genuine to me i, I thought it looked great um i just really enjoyed the hell out of it uh i i'm a, a sucker for big great casts like this so seeing all these people bounce back and forth and everything like that uh it's just just very entertaining it also has a very small town feel and at the end uh there's a really funny line uh where this old man screams he used to rob my store and there's like two or three times where i busted out laughing i i laughed really hard at that scene but also i'm not familiar with friedkin's comedy stuff you know i know he's done other films that aren't you know the exorcist or cruising or you know the darker stuff but this one had a, a light flair to it and i thought it was actually tremendous too i don't think i've seen him do a bad film so um yeah yeah I, i'm gonna dig deeper and definitely watch sorcerer which has been on my list for years so yeah that is the brinks job uh highly recommended and uh very entertaining Gotta accentuate the positive Eliminate the negative Latch on to the affirmative Don't mess with Mr. In-Between 1949 Every safe in the city of Boston was flush with post-war prosperity And every cracker in town was looking to peel the right peat Benny, did you get downstairs and heat up the fire? The money was easy for anyone with a steady hand and a brain in his head. We're surrounded! Let's get the hell out of here! Then there was Tony Pino. Got any Chianti? No, I don't keep that cheap stuff in the house. Why don't you get it? I'm better off without it. The building is asleep, and all that money is in here, and he's being held prisoner. And it's screaming at me through the walls. It's yelling, hey, Pony, come in and grab me. Get me out of here. <laughs> the Brinks job. A crime so insane. Nobody in their right mind would go in on it. And nobody in their right mind did. I was in the joint. They got cheap locks and 75 watt bulbs. What if they got radar? What's radar? Peter Falk is Tony Pino. What about the letter? A small-time booster with plenty of talent and no luck. Alan Gorwitz is his brother-in-law, Vinny. Jerry Murphy is Sandy. Paul Savino is Jazz, the bookie. Warren Oates is Specky O'Keefe. Kevin O'Connor is Gus, the lookout. And Peter Boyle is Joe, the exchange man. Frankly, no one thinks you'll pull it off. Who's no one? Everyone. How they plan Brinks is the funny part. You want to fire a cannon? Off the roof of that building? What happens next? We're on. Is the scary part. What the hell's the This is a serious miscalculation. But just getting to know them is the best part.
error by error, blunder by blunder, they showed the world just how far a nobody could go. Isn't it a great country? Aren't you glad you finally caught the boat? The Brinks job, the American dream come true. Okay, this next one here is one that I've had on my to-see list for years. I had a DVD, never watched it. Um, it is the first Power from 1990. This is a Scorpion releasing disc um, with in collaboration with Kino again. Uh, yeah, like I said, the stars Lou Diamond Phillips, and there's a couple other familiar faces in here. Geez, before I forget, I want to notice that there's a couple small little parts in here played by David Gale and Bill Mosley, which blew my mind seeing them in here. It was very, um, just added a little bit to it. David Gale plays kind of like a priest or cardinal, and uh, Bill Mosley's a bartender, and right away I recognize those guys' voices, you know, horror icons, so right away I saw them, so get that over with. Um, the first power, um, Lou Diamond Phillips plays kind of a loose cannon cop, we're bringing that back, and him and his partner, uh, Michael Williamson, uh, who's in a bunch of stuff, like, you know, Forrest Gump and Heat and all sorts of things, and Miracle Mile. They're, they're basically partners. Um, in the very beginning, they catch a killer. He's played by this really weird guy. Um, he's in a bunch of stuff, but I can't I can't pinpoint his name. It's kind of an intense character actor. It kind of feels like a Patrick Kilpatrick or somebody like that. You know, those kind of Brian Thompson type kind of character actors. Bruce Glover, I'd put him in that kind of caliber. So um, he's a serial killer, and he's a satanic serial killer. And uh, he basically gets caught and he's executed but it doesn't end there. You guys know this is a body jumping movie uh, similar to Fallen or Shocker or The Hidden. Well those all have different kind of plots but the same kind of concept is jumping through you know the bodies so you never know who the, the actual killer is. I think it fits most with Fallen. I would even say that Fallen in this this could Fallen could technically be kind of a remake of this one. Um, even though I think Fallen was based on a book. Let me know, guys, if that's right. But so anyways, uh, Lou Diamond Phillips, this guy gets put to death. And right away, um, the murders start happening again. They think maybe there's a copycat killer. But we soon realize, through a psychic that contacts you know, Lou Diamond Phillips, is also the one who gave him the tip off where he is, that this uh, killer has some sort of weird, uh, a weird satanic ritual where he can continue to live after he's dead and jump through all these bodies. So that's what's going on here. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so it's Lou Diamond Phillips trying to find out who the killer is. There's some nice action in here. This movie's definitely a uh, horror action film. There's some crazy car stunts. There's some crazy jumping off building stunts. Um, Lou Diamond Phillips is all right, even though he's really kind of almost like, he's definitely breaking the law quite a bit. Loose cannon kind of police officer. And there is a couple scenes where I was like, wow, that they're going to kill that character like that. And it, it kind of almost made me chuckle. It's not gratuitously gory, but when there is violence, it's there. Um... Uh, the lead is actually, geez, who is it? Melanie Griffith's sister, which is kind of weird to me. I, I didn't. She did look kind of like her, and she looked familiar, but I couldn't put, you know, I couldn't pinpoint where I had seen her from. Uh, the bad guy is creepy. He does a great job, and uh, the fight scenes are, are solid. Like the action's better than the horror in this movie, I would suggest. Um, but it has a nice little finale, and it's all in all, it's pretty decent. Uh, it ties into, you know, the religion kind of wanting to turn their back and not believe in satanic stuff at, at one point. 
Uh, and the, probably the most, the turning point in the movie that kind of surprised me, which I thought was actually a nice little, um, you know, detail, was they actually go back to the killer's home and meet his mom, and and they start to dig in, and you kind of realize his psychology and where he came from originally. And I kind of enjoyed that. I'm always a sucker for psychology in horror films when it involves serial killers or killers or mentally unstable people, even if it is bullshit. I still somehow get in like enjoy it. So it's just something I, I kind of like. Um, all in all, I think this one's worth checking out, and uh, I'm glad I finally saw it. Like I said, it was one of those ones that just passed me by, and I knew of it probably since close to after it came out, probably a couple years after it came out, maybe seeing the box. But I, I really knew about it after I, you know, uh, after like stuff like Fallen came out, and I went back and kind of like would compare the two. I'm like, oh, that makes sense, and, and stuff like that. So, um, you know, uh, I think it's worth checking out. I enjoyed it. Action movie. Oh, on the desk, before I forget, there was a nice interview with Lou Diamond Phillips. He's very jovial about the whole event. Talks about the stunts and how intense they got and how he kind of got beat up a little bit and how uh, the uh, other actor did as well. Um, seems like a genuinely nice guy. Um, and there's also an interview with the crazy guy on here. And he also seems like a cool guy as well. Talking about filming in a church and the uh, priest telling him, no, you guys aren't doing anything to condemn this church, are you? He's like, no, no. And he's this like scenes before he's acting like Jesus on the cross as a priest in the, as a serial killer inside this church. So nice little fun little stories about the movie. Um, nice release. Looks good. I thought they cleaned it up pretty pretty uh, decently. I, I was impressed how it looked. I don't think there's subtitles on this one, which disappointed me a little. But all in all, well worth checking out. Since the beginning of time, Satan has worked to create the perfect killer. One who kills many without reason one who cannot be stopped. Today, that man exists. Be warned. We're just going to go through a very small door here. Lou Diamond Phillips is hunting a man who kills for the sake of killing. Tracy Griffith might be the only one who can help stop him. I know where he's going next. What? But this location fits the pentagram pattern on the map, and my informant says this is where he's going to strike next. This is the third time in less than five years that Logan has been responsible for the death or capture of a serial killer. See you around, buddy boy. I doubt it. Each death makes him stronger. How did you know where he was going next? I opened myself up to him. You might have executed his body, but his spirit has been released. He has the third power. He could be anywhere. How's the stomach, buddy boy? <laughs> Logan! He has the second power. Hi, cutie. He could be anyone. Sister. Oh, I'm afraid she's not here. Now, he has the first power. See you around, buddy boy. Immortality. You don't have any idea of what you've been facing. You can't go on killing forever. You want a bit? <laughs> the first power. 
Okay, the next one here. Like I said, I was just going smorgasbord. I was like, I'm going to watch what I want. Just grab random movies I haven't seen in a while. Random movies I wanted to see forever. So um, I grabbed the Shout Factory release, which is probably out of print at this point, of The Beast Within by, um, geez, the director of Howling 2 and 3 and a slew of other movies, written by Tom Holland. So this is a movie that I saw back on its MGM DVD initial release, and I always kind of liked it. I hadn't revisited it in years. Early 80s movie. Um, this one always stuck out to me in my memory because it was just kind of a weird coming-of-age movie that's really creepy in its concept to me, but also goofy. Like, it's goofy and creepy, the idea of it. And it's been done a couple times, you know, the idea of someone um, uh, born of rape. Uh, a monster created from rape, a spawn of rape. You know, think Curse of the Werewolf or even Humongous, which is another 80s-style uh, horror film, more of a slasher that one is. So basically the plot is uh, a newlywed couple, uh, Ronnie Cox, and I can't think of the female, the actress's name. They just were married. They're driving uh, through Mississippi, and uh, their car has some accidents. Uh, he makes a wrong turn, or he, yeah, and he makes a wrong turn, pulls off, gets stuck, and they go to the gas station. While he's doing that, his wife and dog are left behind. His wife hears something because a dog goes nuts, lets him out, wanders into the woods, and she is attacked and raped by this weird creature that stumbles away in the woods. Um, they find her. Um, her husband comes back, finds her, takes her home. Fast forward, like, t- takes her back home. Fast forward 20 years, and they have a son who starts to have these medical problems And before he's a perfectly healthy boy. Um, one day, he kind of snaps and drives back to that small town where his mother was raped, and we realize that he is a product of this rape, and it's a coming-of-age story, and uh, there's all these cicada noises that everything like that. And if you guys watch Joe Bob's Last Drive-In, you guys will realize he made a, um, a comparison to himself as, you know, the Beast Within, which has every 17 years cicadas come and every 17 years his show comes. So uh, I thought that was a nice little touch and very funny and obscure enough for him that was really cool. But what happens is uh, he he starts to transform at night and become almost, you think, like a werewolf-like creature, but it's not exactly that. Um, like the cicadas do play a part in it and it's kind of cool nice, you know, uh, metaphor, I guess for the coming of age, uh, you know, puberty, you turn it into a monster, but it's a cicada, it's sometimes metamorphosis and all that kind of shit. Um, so basically, the town it has some dark past. No one wants to talk about it. There's some familiar character actors in the small town. We have L.Q. Jones as the sheriff from a peck and bunch of Peck and Paw movies. We have R.G. Armstrong from a bunch of Peck and Paw movies and, and some horror movies, uh, Children of the Corn. Um, he is the town doctor. And then there's some other people in here you'll recognize for sure, too. Um, I can't put my name on it. There's a couple I knew right away. Um, oh, yeah, a Luca Skew from a bunch of stuff, Frailty and, you know, uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. So it's got a nice little cast like that. I can tell the director was, uh, you know, a fan of these older kind of movies to throw these guys in there, and I was happy to see them. They really add something to the movie. But uh, anyways, the young son goes around and starts butchering everyone, and the death scenes are pretty brutal and uh, nasty, and, they're, and they do weird shit with it. One, like, he's, like, pounding up ground meat, and that they kind of incorporate that in the murder, and you're like, why? <laughs> it's just gross. But you realize that um, the son is kind of possessed to a certain extent by the past person, and that's when it starts to get a little too clunky for me. It's like, um, you know, he passed his soul into it through whatever. I don't know his well-being and his, his his life is in it. But you realize that they did him wrong. This group of this family, so he's out for revenge. But at one point, you start to realize. Why the hell would he turn into a monster originally unless he was always a monster? Why did they have to torture him in the past? And if you've seen the movie, you'd understand. So it's just like, I don't necessarily uh, want to get into that details. I'll spoil it too much. But 
it kind of makes sense. It's kind of bullshit. Um, the acting, I think, is solid. I actually enjoy like the character actors, like I said. The gore is, 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 per- is decent and nasty, and it's a pretty violent film. And the rapes are really nasty, like surprisingly sleazy, like way sleazier and graphic than I expected. I don't think they expected anyone to see this movie this clean, so seeing that stuff in, in more detail... You know, it's there more than you would expect. But all in all, it's a nice little horror movie and the only movie I can think of with the Cicada Man in it. So you got to give it up for that. Definitely a a mix of late 70s, early 80s sleaze, kind of hardcore, you know, gory horror movies with the 50s sentiment uh, plot story line. So I like it. Um, I would recommend it. And, you know, there's uh, nice commentaries on the disc and stuff like that. But The Beast Within, cool stuff. Warning. This preview cannot show all of the terrifying and grotesque transformation sequences from the last 30 minutes of The Beast Within. The filmmakers strongly suggest that those who may be shocked by this unique, horrifying movie use caution when seeing the film. Side of Michael. Never seen anything like it before. Something that's been waiting, watching, and growing. Michael? Something evil. I know you're in here. And whatever it is, it is ready to be released. I came back for them. All of them. And now no one, no one is safe. You have been warned. You are dared to remain calm during the horrifying final 30 minutes of The Beast Within. Even you may not survive. You have been warned. Okay, this next one here, I don't know what the hell I'm going to say about it, but this is Revenge of Billy the Kid. I've always wanted to see this damn thing. I finally just bit the bullet and paid for the out-of-print DVD a few months back, maybe maybe a year ago at this point. 1991, I believe it's a British horror film, but I swear to God I would have thought this was a new one from New Zealand if, nobody, if somebody didn't tell me different or I didn't read it. Um, so yeah, this feels exactly like early Peter Jackson. Not as good as Bad Taste or Meet the Feebles or Dead Alive, but it's definitely in the same school of early Peter Jackson. Oh boy, here we go. Uh, Yeah. We have this uh, family that's isolated on an island. They're farmers. They're the McDonald family. They're so uh, all the kids are named. Uh, there's two Ronalds, and then there's a Ronnie who's a girl. So they're all named Ronald McDonald, and they're farmers. It's hilarious. Yes, uh, goofy. That kind of goofy. You know what I mean? So we have this really gross family: three kids, a mom and a dad, and a grandpa. And uh, they're farmers. Yada yada yada. They're really gross. You see how they live? They're over the top, ridiculous kind of backwoods characters. Right in the beginning, the grandpa dies. His face falls at a plate of food they fight over the food after he's dead and then they throw him in a big compost pile of shit and mud and just leave him there and throughout the entire movie he is constantly rotting and it's kind of a funny gag I I laughed out loud quite a bit and the first half of this movie I was laughing by the second half I kind of think it wore out its welcome but what happens is the father one day taking the sheep or goat or it's a uh, yeah, Billy. The, it's like a, a sheep or goat, whatever the hell it is. She's kid. I'm getting confused here. Is it a goat? I think it's a goat man, um, or a sheep man. 
Hmm. They call a kid. I'm getting whatever. It's a sheep goat thing. I don't fucking remember. Um, basically, what happens is the father's walking with uh, it's goat. It's a goat because drinking goat's milk. Duh. Okay, with his goat, and uh, he decides to molest it. So he molests um, the goat, and uh, a couple nights later, or whenever it happens, six months later, whenever goats are born, um, gives birth to this weird, gross goat thing. Uh, the father wants to kill it, everyone's appalled by it, but the daughter takes a liking to it and sticks up for it and saves Billy the kid. So, uh, yeah, this leads to this like first part where the, the creature is like a little creature running around and causing problems and eating chickens. And I actually think that stuff is really funny. I like it when it's a little creature. I think it's well done. I think it's almost cute in a repulsive way. But, uh, you know, uh, know, it gets bigger and bigger. It starts to attack and the family hates it. So, you know, there's some gory things encountering the, you know, the the monster and stuff like that. And it becomes a versus kind of monster movie. Uh, The girl also has a love story back on the mainland. And uh, this also, you know, back in there, you see like a poster of Evil Dead on the wall of her boyfriend. And you can see that's a huge, uh, you know, inspiration for this movie. Movie, definitely inspired by splatter films which is like i say peter jackson or sam raimi stuff you know so it's definitely inspired by that kind of element but um you know it's just a little too goofy at times although like i said the jokes are funny in the beginning i actually enjoyed a lot of the stuff happening within the first you know um 45 minutes but after a while i just kind of you know wear out my wears out my welcome there were some nice like shots of, of them like in the foreground you'll see in the background like um the outhouse getting taken out and somebody in there and stuff like that. Um, some of the gore effects are, you know, uh, they just people getting pulled up and blood falling down, which is okay. But then there's some really nasty after effects um, that are good. So all in all, I think it's worth mo- watching. The monster looks great. I really enjoy the look of the monster, especially when he's little. When he gets bigger, he's all right too. And this is the only movie I think I've seen about a goat man like this kind of goat man. I know there is one um, by, geez, what's that director's name who did IBS and stuff? He did one with a goat man, I think. But uh, this one, yeah, it, it's fun. It's goofy. It's gore- it's really dumb it looks really dirty and gross um kind of make you queasy if you really really love um early uh peter jackson stuff then uh maybe give it a look i do myself i don't think it lives up to those movies but i do think it's worth checking out and again i saw a crummy dvd it didn't look particularly great it was a dark movie so maybe if this was cleaned up maybe i could even get more sick from it so i don't know revenge of billy the kid really weird This is a story from far away in the depths of England where the MacDonald family live. Meet Giles and Greta MacDonald. Why, you're a big boy, Giles MacDonald. Daughter Ronald. I've told you before, it's Ronnie. Oh, quick. Boyfriend Lance a lot. Thanks. The brothers Ronald. And that was Grandpa MacDonald. Just peaceful country folks scraping a living as best they can. Is that it? What that goat needs is a good saying to. <laughs> Where are you going to town for a stud? Oh, fucking mainland. Fucking women. Fucking goats. <laughs> my, my. You're a pretty one. How was it for you, then? Then one night... Go! Give him birth! Billy drops in on the family. He's a freak. A mutant. 
thieving bastard. Now he's on the loose. And he's out for revenge. He's out there, he's hungry, and he's nowhere to stay. Whatever it is, it's killing our livestock. And now he's killing the McDonald family. And there's only one person who can save them. The Revenge of Billy the Kid for animal lovers everywhere. Okay, now when we're on the sick kick, I guess I'll go into this one. Now, remind you, I didn't watch my DVD that I got because you guys want to know the story last week. Listen to it. Um, I, um, I've ordered a Blu-ray to come in. I don't know if I'm going to try to return this still or not to Best Buy, but um, it is the Golden Glove. I actually watched it uh, digitally. So, yeah, this is, uh, I believe, a German film. And uh, boy, oh boy, the Golden Glove had a reputation last year at festivals for being like the grossest, craziest movie around, and technically accounts for this year, for 2020, because it's a wide release in the States. Uh, so Strand Releasing put the DVD out here. I wish there was a Blu-ray, but uh, okay. So this uh, follows the story of real-life serial killer in Germany named Fritz Halka, or Halka, Halka, I think. And uh, oh boy, does this feel way too true and uh, accurate um, to watch. So saying that, really well-made movie, well-acted movie, uh, well-structured movie. I have no complaints to how the film is made. Um, it's just that the subject matter is really gross and really nasty, and I can't take that as a negative because serial killers should be portrayed as gross and nasty. They shouldn't be portrayed as heartthrobs like Ted Bundy. They should be portrayed as what they are, monsters. And um, the Golden Globe portrays it as, as a... a as the killer as a monster and disgusting and despicable and it betrays the way he lives in such a gross way and the people that he's around in such a um it's just a sad world that this character lives in and he's surrounded by sad people and uh this movie could definitely be shown to help people sober up uh, show it in a AA meeting or something like that and i think that you'd get a lot better success rate so um the story falls like i said fritz halka and he is this um kind of very ugly ugly is the best the best way i can put it he has a wonky eye he is just very gross bad teeth doesn't take care of himself very strange he goes to this bar called the golden glove and uh there's a bunch of weird characters in there there's a guy who is a former ss officer who's just a big piece of shit there's this kind of drunk guy who always brags there's all sorts of weird characters and there's these women there and you realize right that are always there every night being and everybody's just drinking themselves to death and so fritz Hawke. You tell right off the bat, you almost feel sorry for him because he's trying to pick up women, buy them drinks, and no one's accepting. And then, uh, you know, and and eventually you, you feel a little sympathy for him until you see kind of what he does and what he is. Uh, I, it might be early on in the movie where they show a first murder. He, and, um, and then after a while, he's you know, going to this bar and picking up women. He starts a relationship, and the way he treats this poor character is so twisted and disappointing depressing and uh, the way they designed his house because he lives in like an attic and there's people will know him that he blames everything on like the smell of, which is actually decaying bodies in his, his crawl space he blames the greeks for it so um 
it's just the way his his whole house is designed and it's so gross and everybody complains about the smell. I really could smell everything in this movie, the way it was, everything felt gross and nasty. And there's a couple times when I was gagging where I was like, oh man, geez, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't take it. I, I wanted to be out of this world. And uh, I just couldn't imagine living like that. Couldn't imagine being drunk all the time and with a hangover and everything. But uh, the way, and in a real sick way, this movie is darkly comedic. I don't know how to put it that way. It's just so messed up at times that you just can't do anything else but laugh or puke. And sometimes I'd rather laugh than puke, but sometimes it's a little bit of both in here. So I, without spoiling too much, it's a tremendous performance by the lead. Um, there's a couple moments where I just felt genuinely uh, bad for people and also just repulsed, like equally repulsed and bad. I feel bad and repulsed by them all at the same time. Um, and his, the people he usually, um, attacks or goes for are like middle age or older women because, you know, they're the only ones that will go home with them because they're that desperate. But, uh, it has one of the most realistic, um, death scenes I've seen in a movie. It's all in a wonder. There's lots of really good camera work that only doesn't break and they do lots of crazy things in there. Well, this murder is like a five minute strangulation and it has all the nasty little details that feel too real and make it really uncomfortable so uh i I would really recommend checking this one out if you're in the serial killers but you you have a strong stomach or you want to see the genuine thing and you don't just want to see you know hollywood serial killers then i would recommend checking out the golden club because uh oh boy man this is this is really strong stuff but like i said I, i can't rate it negatively for doing its job right i mean it's good movie that's all there is to it right Da willst du rein? Ja. In goldenen Handschuh? Ja. Da gehen auch normale Menschen rein. Soldaten Norbert, Tampon Günther, Cola Rumwaldraut, Nasen Ernie, Dornkart Max. Wie kommt man denn zu so einem Namen? Weil du nur morgens, mittags, abends Dornkart trinkst. Und heißt Max? Nee, Peter. Ich frag die Dame, ob sie was trinken möchte. Erkläre ich ferner Herrn Honker, meine leiblich geborene Tochter Rosi zuzuführen, dass er sie vernaschen darf. Und? Hast du aber noch was auszusetzen? Junge, komm bald wieder, bald wieder. Es gibt genau drei Gründe, warum der Mensch trinkt. Erstens, um was Schlimmes zu vergessen. Zweitens, um was Schönes zu feiern. Und drittens, wenn man nichts los ist, dass was passiert. Einen wunderschönen guten Abend, die Damen. Ein bisschen rau, aber stark. 
Okay, we have a Patreon pick here, and I figured I'd follow up the Golden Glove serial killer film with another one. This is Citizen X. When was this made? I believe 95 or something around there? Oh, this was released in 2000? That's, that's way later than I thought. But um, Citizen X follows the story of Andre Chikatilo, who was um, the most prolific serial killer ever for a long time, and especially the most prolific serial killer or tied or one of the top two most prolific serial killers in Russia. So, uh, yeah, this uh, stars um, Donald Sutherland, uh, Max von Sydow, Stephen Ra from, you know, um, The Crying Game, and Josh Ucklin. And uh, this follows the story of a medical examiner who is promoted to kind of like detective to uh, find out um, soul, pretty much soul. Soul on the, solely on the case for a long time to handle the Andre Chikatilo murders. And this opens up, it's communist Russia, and right off the bat, it, it opens up with um, them finding a murder, and um, he tells them to comb the woods, kind of uh, tells this detective, I don't care what the last guy told you, this person was killed, comb the woods so we can find some identification, and they end up bringing in like eight or nine bodies, and that kind of starts... Uh, right away. This jumps, I think it starts in the, maybe the early 90s, or no, it starts in the 80s, actually, the early 80s, and jumps all the way until the mid-90s. And so throughout the film, we have Stephen Ra dealing with, you know, the bureaucracy of Russia, the communist state, and how they don't want this to get out, that it's a serial killer, how they don't want this to get out, that they don't weren't prepared for it, so they don't want to ask anyone for help. They don't want to, you know, bring in the FBI's help for anything. Um, Donald Sutherland plays kind of someone who's in charge, but he's not in charge. He's in charge somewhat, and he kind of knows when to be quiet, when to eat shit, when to sling it. And he's trying to teach these, um, you know, things to Stephen Ra so that they can get this done as best as they can. Josh Auckland is in charge, and he is, you know, the bad guy from Lethal Weapon 2. He was just in Crescendo a couple weeks back from the Hammer Time. Um, really good actor, and he plays a huge piece of shit. And uh, he has some great lines in here. Is this man crying? Um, uh, and everything like that. And there's some nice little moments where he gets just desserts in here. Uh, it's a very satisfying movie, although, I mean, when it comes to that part of the story. Uh, oh, geez. Jo Jeffrey DeMunt actually plays Andre Chikatilo and a tremendous performance. And this movie, like I said, um, we have something like The Golden Glove, which portrays it really nasty and and deep in your face and it feels just really sick. I, I feel like Citizen X is doing it as unexploitative as possible. And I wouldn't call Golden Glove exploitative because I feel like they're just like, we're going to show you how it really is, how gross this is. We're not glamorizing this. And I don't think Citizen X is glamorizing it either. I think it's telling you the story is um, as least graphic as possible and as most accurate as it can get, I guess, because this is based on a book that was based on the case and everything like that. I'm sure they did some of the things, you know, make some drama between Sutherland and the whole big thing like that. But as far as Chikatilo's case is concerned, he was a child murderer who killed 35 kids and then 17 women. So he killed 52 people. And he did most of them in the woods. And he jumped on the, the train thing and would and prey upon slow kids and, and homeless kids. And kids are just like not in good standing and everything like that. So again, it's that less dead thing. And the thing that makes this one so special to me is that it shows the you know hypocrisy and bureaucracy of Russia at the time with the Communist Party not wanting to, you know, we, this is a completely um, West 
Western thing is a serial killer. We don't have a serial killer. This is a group of homosexuals or mental patients or something like that. They keep trying to blame it on other things that are completely nonsensical. Um, so that's also really interesting. Them figuring out the cases and figuring out the pieces is also interesting. And they go into some of the details of the case. If you guys aren't familiar, I don't want to spoil too much. Um, Jeffrey DeMunn, it's really creepy in it and, and everything like that. Um, and the murders, like they're na- they, they make you feel bad, but they're not over super gratuitous. Like they're not like, the golden glove where they feel you know they are you know they are it's so weird that i can praise the golden glove for showing it like it is and then the citizen x and praise that one for not going too far you know what i mean that's what's the the thing is like there's a like henry i love i think's a great movie and these both i think are great movies but then when i look at something like the ted bundy uh the most vile shockingly evil thing i'm like i think that's tasteless i don't know there's just a fine line and i think stuff like citizen x does it does it right and i think golden glove does it right but different if that makes any sense and even though henry's inaccurate as hell i feel like it does it right as well so i would really recommend checking out citizen x and it's a shame it's one of the hbo ones because uh it's going to be hard for a release although you can right now watch it on amazon prime in hd so take advantage of that there are some nice shots here of the woods and the trains and everything like that and uh great performances by all the leads in here um no weak spots at all uh, and I just like the idea that it's on the backdrop of communist Russia crumbling while they're chatting this serial killer, and right when it crumbles, boom, you know. And I like how they handle his uh, death in this movie. I wish that we would handle our serial killers the same way sometimes. As many as 17 stab wounds to the face and eyes. 52 victims. 32 stab wounds with additional disfigurement. One killer. Of a nature that suggests... Not so much a sharp instrument. This is the story of the world's most deadly, most prolific, and most evasive serial killer in history. There's another body in the woods. This is the true life story of the hunt for Citizen X. Every piece of garbage within 200 yards of here checked out. For fingerprints and fibers and bodily fluids. Every can, every bottle, you understand me? If we're gonna fail, it won't be because of something we left undone. Citizen X, Stephen Ray, Donald Sutherland, and Max von Sydow in the film that gives Silence of the Lambs a run for its money. Citizen X, available from HBO Home Video. Okay, the next one is a Patreon pick from uh, Jeremy from 22 Shots of Moods and Horror. And uh, he picked something really freaking weird. It is Mother Goose's Rock and Rhyme from 1990. 
and he basically sent me a YouTube link because I doubt this has ever been released anywhere else. But, uh, you know, after watching this or when I started this, I was like, you know what? I have heard about this before. I think friends of mine had mentioned it when I was younger that it was really weird or just had brought it up that they saw it as a kid. Um, yeah, I, this is freaking weird. Mother Goose is actually played by, um, the wife and all in the family. And, uh, she basically, you know, mother goose is a fairy tale story. She, you know, the books when you were a kid, the mother goose stories, and there was a bunch of weird fairy tales. Well, she, this is a world. This is the mother goose's world. And she writes all these rhymes, which are characters like, you know, um, Humpty Dumpty and, uh, Pickle Pete, whatever, you know, Piper, what all these people, I haven't read any of these things since I was a little kid. So, um, you know, uh, Mary had a little lamb, um, Mary, um, uh, contrarian Mary, all these kind of things. So, uh, at one point, Gordon is her son. He feels like an outcast in this weird, crazy world. This is a kid's movie of some sorts, but it's more like a Coke-driven music video than anything else, fever dream kind of thing. So, uh, essentially what happens is Mother Goose disappears, and, um, uh, I, um, no, wait, yeah, yeah, Mother Goose disappears, and, uh, uh, Mary... Her flock of sheep, uh, basically, not that Mary had a little lamb, is it a little Bo Peep? It lost her sheep. Little Bo Peep and uh, Gordon, a goose, end up trying to find her because she's looking for her sheep. And all around uh, the weird world, people start disappearing. They run into all sorts of different characters like Itsy Bitsy, um, like I said, Humpty Dumpty, King uh, the King, all sorts of crazy people. But what's really worth noting in this movie is the cast. Uh, the cast is insane. First, we have Shelley Duvall. Um, geez, Katie Seagal, Woody Harrelson, um, Howie Mandel, Little Richard, ZZ Top, um, Harry Anderson. There's tons of people in here. I'm missing a bunch too. Simon and Garfunkel are both in here. Um, it's just a bonkers, weirdo, freaking movie. And um, at first I was like, I don't think I can finish this. This is just making me ill. Brightly colored, 90s to the max, man. This is so 90s it hurts. It's too 90s. Um, even though it was made in 1990, it was like the, the jet start they needed a 90s TV. It was just so freaking weird. So uh, there's a bunch of musical numbers in here, and uh, what you figure out is that Mother Goose has been abducted into the real world, and they have to rescue her. So that's pretty much it. Cheech Marin's also in here. Um, some of the jokes are actually um, a little bit adult in here. They add a couple things here and there that are probably for the poor adults having to watch this with their kids. Uh, like I said, it feels like the director did some music videos, so I feel like that's where a lot of this is coming from. You know, a lot of music video style things. That's why he has the access to all these people and these musical numbers. Um, a lot of the stuff is choreographed really well. The set designs are batshit crazy. They'll zoom up in the sky and show miniatures for the cars and things like that. They do the old uh, door trick where people are running through doors trying to find each other opening doors gag. There's a couple moments I did laugh out loud and it was just like childish. Um, the Crooked Man basically writes a fake ransom note to get them to come that says bring money and chili dogs. And um, the Crooked Man has a dog with him. And uh, they basically find him, confront him. He says, I just wrote the note because I wanted the money. So like, you're not getting any money. And they look at the dog and they say, you're not getting any chili dogs. And he's like, Rrr! and I was just like, eye roll. I couldn't tell who a lot of these people were. Like Woody Harrelson, I couldn't even tell it was him until the credits because the, the quality is pretty poor. But 
his stuff's actually really funny. He's paired up with Debbie Harry from um, a Blondie and stuff like that. So that's really kind of a funny moment. And I got to give it up to Howie Mandel um, in the egg suit because I know he hates germs, but also because his uh, egg rhyming and egg like um, puns were pretty funny, um, even if the movie was freaking ridiculous. I uh, got to give it up for unlimited egg puns. Um, I actually laughed, and he had the same energy he had in Little Monsters as Maurice. So uh, all in all, this is a fever dream. This is not recommended for. Um, sober adults or um, uh, children who are very easily scared because I imagine this did do some weird scarring. It's just a crazy um, fever dream of a kid's movie and it's just freaking weird. I don't know how to explain it any other way to be honest but that is Mother Goose Rock and Rhyme. Yeah. Jeremy, why? Why? Not too far away there's a place called Rhineland home to some pretty <laughs> interesting characters. I'm little Bo Peep and I've lost my sheep and I don't know where to find them. It's a place where Mother Goose rules the roost and classic fairy tales come to life like never before. Hi, Elsie. Long time no see. So come along as we travel to Rhineland in a magical musical video adventure from Shelly to Paul. <laughs> Mother Goose Rock and Ride. When Mother Goose winds up missing... You've got to save me! It's up to Little Bo Peep and friends to find her before all the stories in Rhineland disappear. It's a very woolly emergency. Join in on the search with Little Miss Muffet. Can I fluff your tuffet? Jack and Jill. Well, unfortunately, there are a couple of klutzes. And many, many more. Don't miss all your favorite stars starring as all your favorite fairy tale friends. Get ready for Music and Mayhem, brought to you by the one and only Shelley Duvall. Great! Don't miss Shelley Duvall's Mother Goose Rock and Ride, now available on home video from Lyric Studios. Okay, I got some streaming ones, and I'm going to be as quick as possible about the streaming titles. This one is Lolly Madonna XXX, and this is directed by Richard Severian, a Safarian who did The Vanishing uh, Point. And um, I, I heard about this one on, i got to give a shout-out to Pure Cinema Podcast, one of the best podcasts. Elric Kane picked this one for his Discovery. That's a Brian Sauer, Elric Kane podcast. Check it out. Uh, very good stuff. You can find it anywhere if you type it in. But uh, Lolly uh, Madonna XXX, this is a super weird movie. The title would suggest so, right? So this is an early 70s film, and it's uh, star has a great cast. It's a Hatfield-McCoy's kind of story, but it's a little bit more, you know, allegory to Vietnam and things. We have two families that are kind of in the middle of fighting over this meadow um one is led by it's, it's to the feathers and the um gas dots or something like that i can't remember but rudd steiger is the patriarch of one family and his kids are jeff bridges randy quaid who else is in there um ed larder and um geez uh, scott wilson and uh another kid and then we have the other family the feathers who the patriarch is robert ryan and his kids are gary Busey and uh, paul kozloff low and uh a couple others uh, a girl and so I'm not really familiar with the other people in the movie, but everyone does a tremendous job. So um, basically what happens is one of the Robert Ryan bought this meadow that used to be Rudd Steiger's when it went up for bankruptcy. No one else did. So that put bad blood in there. Uh, what the Feather family does... Um, 
or no, what Robert Ryan's kids do, that's the other family, the Goshoffs or whatever it is, they write this weird letter, um, postcard, and let the Feather family intercept it. And it says, hey, I can't wait to come meet you guys. I, I'm a beautiful girl. Size, uh, signs it, Lolly Madonna XXX, like she's going there to meet uh, somebody and marry one of the young kids on the other family. They read this, intercept it, decide to go in the town uh, when she's supposed to show up. And uh, even though it's a completely fake postcard, and there is actually a beautiful girl getting off the train station. So they kidnap her to get back at them and uh, take her back to their house. Uh, meanwhile, the other family was trashing their steel, stealing back some pigs. So right away, this kind of escalates things. And, and in a way, it's kind of told by her point, I guess, in, in, in her kind of direction. It's kind of strange that they added her character because this story could be told without her, even though she kind of is somewhat of a catalyst for the whole thing. So... Um, we have basically, uh, I would say it's a Vietnam allegory because we have Rudd Steiger and Robert Ryan who are these patriarchal types that their kind of, you know, bitterness towards each other or their kind of stubbornness is really what gets a lot of these people killed and it's their kind of fault they, you know, or, or you know, they're kind of like two factions getting the youth of their nations killed or whatever, yada yada, you can go deep into it. But, um, all the families have kind of a dark history and their dark past and everything. And they're really strange, especially the Feather family. Ed Lorder is such a weird character. He uh, has fantasies about things like that, where he likes uh, fantasies about being a rock star or just doing all sorts of weird things. Really strange, kind of unique performance for Ed Lorder because I'm usually used to seeing him in stuff like Charles Bronson movies like Death Wish 3 and Breakheart Pass and, you know, some other things like Longest Yard. So seeing him do this was kind of uh, refreshing it in a lot of ways. And seeing Scott Wilson, um, he's always solid, you know, like the ninth configuration i thought he had a very deep role and this one he does too even though their characters are really kind of gray and kind of do some nasty things that again push this further but uh of course it's it's not going to end well and things start to escalate and the families kind of go to war and there's some really uh gut-wrenching stuff in here like uh setting a fire with the pigs in the middle and uh and these kind of wars you know you know who suffers the most the people who deserve it the least and that does seem to happen. And this movie is pretty mean-spirited. And it opens up with pictures of the family. Uh, and then it closes with pictures of the family. And uh, it ends kind of abrupt, I think, that some will think. But I think it's appropriate where it ends. Because it's not about seeing everyone die. It's just about the loss. And, you know, at that point, what the hell does it matter if you live or die? It's just that everything's gone so far and so dark. And uh, really recommend this one. Some slow motion, you know, shooting and, and stuff like that. And some uh, kills or some people get killed that I did not really expect. Um, Jeff Bridges is great in it. Uh, Rudd Steiger is great in it, shutting down like that. And Robert Ryan is, is really great, too. Uh, the casting's great. And Gary Busey plays against types. He plays kind of a sweet-natured, uh, you know, kid. And Randy Quaid plays plays a weirdo, uh, kind of a slow, kind of weird guy. So, I, I mean, it's cast so well, and everybody does such a good job. Again, like I said, just kind of like, you know, the Brinks job. I just like watching actors act, and when they're good, it's, it's good enough for me. I was just changing buses on my way to Nashville. I never heard of the Feather family or the Gutshalls before that. By the time I knew what was happening, there wasn't much I could do about it anyway. Two mountain families, proud, jealous, very much alike, but on different sides of a piece of land. The meadow, owned by one. 
by the other. What the hell are you doing, Rudy? Two families, just feuding, friendly like. Right. Got Charles busted up the steel again. When's that man ever gonna leave you alone? First he takes the meadow, now this. There's no end to it, Laban. I'm telling you that. The girl, ah! caught in the crossfires of a growing hatred. We got something Pap Gusher wants. I'll get my lamb back. Wonder where they got the girl then. Well, who was she? Lolly Madonna? There ain't no Lolly Madonna. I made that up, dummy. Joke. Played upon joke. Building a slow but certain path. Let brother. To confrontation. I want to talk to you. What the hell you want me to do? I'll tell you what I want. I want those boys whipped. I want my hogs back. And I want you to keep the hell out of that meadow. What about the girl? And her. <laughs> no, 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 no. You give me the lamb back, you get the girl. Look, you son of a people threatening me. There's no threat. I'll do it. You ain't getting me to go back up there. No way. And now we got you. Oh, you I hope the feathers got their premiums paid up. This is way out of hand. I'll handle them. I won't kill anybody. Nobody's asking you to. Okay, guys, we got a quickie here. It is uh, from Shudder, and it is Smoke and Mirrors, the Tom Savini story. And I don't know how to, how, how much in-depth to go about, you know, a documentary. All that I know is that I've been following Tom Savini's career as long as I knew how to, you know. So I'm a big fan. This starts off and, and you know, goes through his early life, which I'm sure you guys all know a little bit about. But the one part of the documentary that I didn't know anything about was his family. And they go through, he talks about his family, he talks about his kids, you know, his, his, his brothers and his sister and his his parents and then he talks about his kids and his grandkids and his divorces and stuff like that so I didn't know all about this kind of stuff and that kind of puts context into his career and his life and he also talks about why he stopped doing special effects so these are little nice touches they have interviews with a lot of people that you know knew Tom Savini including you know Sid Haig, George Romero who have since passed, um, other people you know Alice Cooper so it's got a lot of people that you'll recognize a lot of people that you'll respect talking about Tom Savini and Savini is great you know he was innovative he was inventive and he was a he was pretty much a jack of all trades the guy could do a lot he could do stunts he could act and he could do special effects you know he could do everything he could teach so um i'm a big fan of tom savini and i know that a lot of people have gotten a bad rep at him at cons and everything like that i didn't have a bad experience but i was very brief meeting him 
So, uh, I, I mean, I, I definitely want to meet him again at a con after watching this because I feel like he's a little bit um, nicer than some of the fans would give credit for. And, and a lot of people have had good experiences. And I know people that actually know him, like, you know, uh, other, like, celebrities, like, oh, no, he's great. So it, it just must be, you know, at times he's not always, you know, the happiest at cons. Shouldn't be getting into this anyways. But I, I, the reason I'm getting into this is that the end credits, they give you a couple little snippets where you're like, yeah, yeah, that's the one I've heard about, the Tom Savini I've heard about occasionally. But uh, it, it's nice just seeing him uh, still be so flexible. Like, he's, like, playing with his grandkid and stuff like that. And it's just, I've always been impressed by his acting, like, comparatively. You know, his special effects were always great, but no one always really talked about his acting. And uh, it's stuff like Knight Riders. I was like, oh, he's so good in this. And, and Dawn of the Dead and everything, really. I always thought he was a pretty top-notch performer in in general and they talk like i said they go early in his career and you know do stuff like his plays because you go you might think i've heard everything there is to hear about tom savini but i think if you watch this you might learn a thing or two people were complaining about the sound and you know some of the the technical stuff on here and it's not like an a billion dollar documentary or anything like that but you also got to remember that a lot of these interviews were grabbed probably on the spot like here's George Romero in Canada I got 10 minutes to ask George about Tom Savini I got to get in there so I can appreciate some of that okay it's either not have it at all or have it all be clean and have a bunch of you know fans talking about it that no one gives a fuck about what they have to say because I know not to be a rude but you know it happens so uh yeah, um, basically, I would check this one out. It's on Shudder. Um, I enjoyed it. What can I say? I'm a fan of Tom Savini. I'm a fan of horror movies. So, yeah, good stuff. My first guest tonight was here once before with some of the most uh, awful-looking horror film special effects we've ever seen. He is one of the most sought-after creators of such effects in the entire movie industry. His credits include Dawn of the Dead, Creep Show, The Burning, and a whole slew of Friday the 13th movies. Please say hello again to Mr. Tom Savini. Tom, nice to see you again. I mean, he could pull things out of his butt, you know, at the last minute. His makeup effects and everything weren't just, it was, it, there was a realism to it. You can't say horror movies without thinking about Savini. The director introduced me to him. We're very lucky to have this guy. It's a really big deal that we've got this guy because he's kind of like a legend. He just found a good way to bring uh, gore and, and cool effects to movies that I grew up on. It's awesome. Tom was literally the one guy who became a household name. Showing his innovations in makeup, and everybody was just amazed. People wanted to go to the movies because Tom's effects and his work propelled him and elevated him into sort of marquee status. Everything he does is very simplistic. It's, it's all magic, essentially. We're poor as shit, we didn't have anything. My first job, they paid me in chocolate milkshakes and silver dollars to be Dracula in this traveling show. Coming back from Vietnam, you know, I was a zombie. I, there was no emotion alive in me. I showed him my portfolio. Three days later, I was doing my first movie in uh, Brooksville, Florida. Took a leave of absence from school to go out of the dead and haven't been back since. I didn't know when the movie started that two weeks into it I would be in the middle of a divorce. And he made those choices based upon me and mine. He definitely, I feel like, missed out on a lot of different opportunities. She's one of the big bright lights in my life. And James, her son, 
I, I, I don't know where to begin with how I love this kid. Makeup effects to me was my, to get my foot in the door as an actor. I was wanting to be an actor in these films. Now Tom's one of a kind. Anytime you work with Tom Savini, you better have your A game. I owe a lot of my career to Tom. I've been blessed with having some interesting people in my life. I have no complaints. I'm really enjoying life. Boy, oh boy, this next one is insane. This is uh, uh, Netflix, and this is uh, Sinan Sono. I always say his name wrong, too. But you guys know, the guy who did Cold Fish and a bunch of other movies. And you know, I was thinking, I was like, this might be the first movie I've seen by him. And this is The Forest of Love. Somebody mentioned that none of us mentioned on the 22 Shots uh, top list. And I had never even heard of the damn thing. So I was like, you know what, I'll check it out. So I looked it up, found it was on Netflix. And boy, oh boy, was I in for a surprise. This movie is, I think, two hour, two, two hour, two hours and plus, like maybe 13 minutes or 30 minutes. Oh boy, I think it's two hours and 30 minutes. This is a weird, wild ride that I don't think I can get that much in depth because me running back and explaining the story and the themes and stuff like that would take three hours in itself. Um, oh, boy. This is a weird film. This jumps over in different times. Uh, basically, what we have here is a group of uh, filmmakers that are you know, focused on this guy who they think is this serial killer who's going around. Meanwhile, there's like a bunch of different storylines going on. We have this young girl who at one point, uh, you know, made like a suicide pack when she was really young and she's kind of like a shut in. I don't want to get into details. I think I've already spoiled a little too much, but she's kind of a shut in. And uh, one of the girls that's asked to be in the movie knew her and wants her to perform in the, this new movie. So she goes back and all these kind of old feelings come rushing back and she kind of blossoms into something else. And this guy, this real weird con artist guy who the kids eventually think is a serial killer starts a relationship with her. And then we go back in the past and realize this guy has interacted with a lot of the other people in the story and has been a con artist throughout the entire thing. You realize he's a sadomasochist and he starts to invade all their lives and all these horrible things start to happen. People get killed and they're all mean while they're making this movie. So it's a movie about making movies, which was a theme in 2019 when we had My Name is Dolomite and Once About a Time in Hollywood and uh, Knife Plus Heart. So we have all these kind of things going on. So it's a, another kind of movie like that. It's shot really well. There's lots of crazy things going on. Um, really weird kind of visuals at times uh, and uh, really I'm a more so weird moments like just batshit crazy moments and it ends in such a weird way that um, isn't quite satisfying but it's satisfying enough um, the acting from the lead girl is really great um, she has this giant monologue at the end which unve unveils a lot of things and you're like I could see this makes a little bit more sense now and I really enjoyed seeing that um, I like this movie. I think the acting's tr uh, top notch. I think the con man is great in it. He's such a piece of shit that I love watching him. Um, and uh, you're always constantly like kind of scared of him because you never know what he's going to do next. Um, but he's also this little Weasley guy you just want to strangle. But uh, I really recommend this. And there's a long sequence where he kind of... Um, uh, manipulates the, this whole family. And it's just kind of crazy. 
and it really justifies what the girl says at the very end. But um, without spoiling too much, I'd recommend checking this one out. Um, f the name Forest of Love, all the murders take place in the forest. So um, good performances, crazy story. You don't know exactly where it's going and more bits and pieces come unfolding and everything like that. But um, tragic at the same time, sad and just twisted, twisted as hell, uh, Forest of Love. ヤバい。村田特製通電棒。人生って どこにでもいなんてなまいだ。死んです。すっげえ。じゃ、こんなとこで映画撮れるなんて最高だろ。君の悩み事を映画にして村田城って男の映画だ。僕は奴を演じてるから分かるんだ。君のフィアンセは人
past and not being able to, uh, it affects your future. You'll never be able to do something because of something you've done in the past. And <laughs> this one starts that and it's done effectively. And then by the end of it, you're like, what the hell is going on? I can't believe they went there. But it gets real weird and real uh, kind of gross at, at points. But um does something different and add some really cool special effects in there, which made this one kind of a kind of a winner for me, and I, I enjoyed it. Um, the third story, um, the third story is my favorite. I don't care uh, if it has a weird thing at the very end, but this one I really loved. It was very scary and very creepy, and reminded me of like a zombie story meets Island of Doctor Moreau meets like a demonic presence. We have this uh, guy. He's uh, supposed to go to this. I can't remember. He's supposed to go to the small town, or this is a, a spot he's supposed to stop in to go through. His bus uh, drops him off here because he's supposed to take care of some work. He's by himself. He's walking up to the place and. Um, He's going in and he realizes no one's around. The town is small. It's deserted. Looks like no one's been here for a while. He eventually finds, it's at night, eventually finds some kids that tell him, come, 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 or you're in deep trouble. You can't let them hear us or they're going to kill us. So they go into this small little area where there's these two kids, a boy and a girl, and they start to tell him what happened. And he's thinking this is bullshit, but he kind of is playing along because he's terrified at the same time. And he starts to, they start to tell him that, um, that something happened in the city where the the big the people from big city came in and started eating the people from small city, and the people from big city turned into monsters. But the people from big city, the small city that partook in the cannibalism, also became monsters to save themselves. So he's like, this is nonsense. What are you talking about? And we realized the girl's father was the first one from big city that started eating, and... Uh, and after that, um, this guy decides this is bullshit after spending a night in and uh, just not taking it. He runs out and uh, come to find out the kids weren't lying. And there is this weird thing going on where everybody is blind. They've gone blind from eating the flesh. But they're slowly turning into beasts like demons. But their vision gets worse and worse as it goes on. So um, I, without spoiling too much, this one had great effects. The monsters looked really good. There's intense moments where they have to stand still. Kind of like reminds me of Jurassic Park a little bit. Or Tremors where they can't move. But the intensity is there because the creatures can get in your face and they start to smell. And it actually is genuinely creepy and uh, really intense. And also there's a couple parts that are funny. Um, which... I don't want to spoil too much, but also violent. And there is a twist at the end, which suggests, you know, some sort of political message about, you know, maybe the rich eating the poor kind of storyline. Like I said, these all seem to have some sort of, you know, bend to them, not necessarily a political motive, I wouldn't say, but maybe just a kind of like a, a morality story or maybe some political stuff, but you know, just the ideas, you know, kind of that stuff. And this one I thought was really well done, really well shot. And uh, even the twist, you know, I, some people will hate it. Some people say it ruins it i kind of understood that it was trying to say something else with it and i kind of liked it but all in all i love that short and the final short is about um a woman who meets kind of like a uh you know it's a marriage that they're supposed to what do they call those when it, the marriages are you know predestined marriages or, or whatever i can't think of the proper term for it but uh she meets somebody and she actually likes the guy they both they hit it off and uh they're gonna they get married but there's some weird strange thing with the family they live in this giant house they're loaded um but he says i have to say goodnight to my grandma i have to get my grandma's blessing and he's like what your grandma's been dead but is she dead something 
something really weird's going on where her presence is still in the house, it seems. The woman doesn't like it. She doesn't believe it. She starts to be really disrespectful, really mean, and uh, she pays a, pays the price for it. And that, that one, it, it's good. Um, it's creepy the way they use, you know, like wind and stuff like that. But it's a little drawn out for me. It's probably the one that could be cut a little bit shorter. That and the first one, I think, cut a little shorter. And I think you have kind of a winner here. All in all, I think it's a decent um, decent movie and well-made, uh, well-acted, too. And they all have this kind of message in there. Maybe respect your elders on the last one there. Uh, or maybe don't get uh, one of those marriages. Don't get into those marriages that are pre-destined. Uh, but all in all, I thought it was a good movie. I thought it was well-made. I thought it was well-acted. And I think it's a nice... It is a little long. It does have a really cool opening animated sequence as well. But um, this is kind of cool that there's no real wraparound. So you could pop in, watch a short, you know, like they're about 35 minutes or so, and then, you know, go away. It, the thing runs, I think, two hours and 17 minutes or something like 13 minutes. So, you know, about 34, 35 minutes a piece. So pop in, watch a short, come back, watch another. So it works well with that. Check it out. It's on uh, Netflix. I think it's cool. ग्रानी, सॉरी वो खटखटाते हुए नहीं सुना गुड नाइट जस्ट से गुड नाइट किसी थ्रू किसी थ्रू गुड नाइट का वो मुझे कोई दिखाई नहीं दे रहा है। नहीं नहीं भी अपसेट है। हेलो आंटी मैं समीरा ममता सिस्टर ने बल्ली पे भेजा है जब मासी की बेबी आएगा मासी मुझको प्यार नहीं करेगी पापा कहा है आपके आ गए इसके पापा को दरवाजे पे कोई है कोई नहीं है दरवाजे पे कौन है डेड वो गुजरी नहीं है सिर्फ मर गई
Hey guys, what's up? It is week 37 of Hammer Time. There we go. Uh, this week we're reviewing the 1972 classic Vampire Circus. Um, this is the Hammer movie I was most familiar with. I had seen this one, um, I don't know, this is probably like the fifth or sixth time I've seen it. I've always had a fascination with the circus when it comes to horror movies. I've always had a fascination with um, uh, this movie. To be honest, ever since I saw the poster, it was in. Uh, it always kind of stuck out to me. I always remembered it, but I actually didn't see the movie until a couple of years before Synapse released the Blu-ray. I actually got this nice little. It was a Carlton import set, which is kind of rare, I think. I got that set and I watched the movie, and then Synapse released a couple years later, so I was really hyped about that. But this is one of the ones that just stuck out to me when I went originally in my Hammer craze. I bought all the Hammer movies, like I don't know when did I start doing it? Like eight years ago when I bought a, a bunch of them and never and just sat on them to watch mm -hmm. eventually. So yeah. Anyways, I'm going on and down memory lane. I should be talking about the movie, but Vampire Circus made 1972 by a director named Robert Young, who did a lot of TV and documentaries. So he really wasn't kind of a um, you know one of their directors or one of their guys. Um, this one doesn't star very many other guys. It does have uh, Thorley Walters in it and a couple familiar faces, but really it doesn't have that big Hammer alumni like a lot of the other titles. No, I'd say that Thorley's probably the only character of it. Thorley Walters, the big one, is very recognizable. Right. The, um, and David Prose, who played um, Frankenstein and Horror Frankenstein. Yeah, and it has uh, somebody else, too. Um, yeah, it the has. Villain is one, one of the guy. villains is from uh, um, Taste of Blood of Dracula, yeah. is the hero. So, essentially, what happens here is, and right in the beginning, this movie opens up in an amazing fashion. I always thought it was mm -hmm. terrifying, where. Uh, um, the school teacher is kind of looking in the woods, reading a book, and he sees this uh, young girl. He seems to know her. Um, maybe they're watching her or something. I don't know. But she's kind of frolicking in the woods. Um, a woman approaches her, and um, she he seems to know who the woman is. Um, they're at a distance, uh, and the woman lures the little girl away. He tries to get up the chase after him because he knows something's wrong. He realizes that this woman has led her to this castle, and the doors have been locked. And uh, we find out that in this ca um, this village, the way the kids have been being taken away and disappearing into this castle, and they've been led by the schoolmaster's wife, right. who has been kind of under the control of the duke, or they call him a count. And this, I think he's a duke or something. He's somebody of importance. He, he, they say count in this. Yeah, 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 he's a count. Which, he's a vampire. And basically is, you know, manipulating the women to love him and using them as, you know, pawns. Right. So the town, the villagers, they get upset. Led by the schoolmaster, they decide to go in and stop the count. They put him down and uh, basically alienate uh, the schoolmaster's wife and burn mm -hmm. the castle down with her in it. Um, the count puts a curse on them. And then we fast forward about 15 years later. Right. And after that's when the story really picks up. It, it appears the town is put under a curse. Superstition has faded away. And they've been isolated because a plague has broken out and everyone is sick. But the only people that broke through the barrier were a circus. A vampire circus. I'll leave it at that. So, um, I love this movie. I think it's great. I think it's creepy. I think it's perverse for a hammer movie. I think it pushed the boundaries. Mm -hmm. This one is so sleazy comparison to the other ones. I don't know how it is a hammer movie. I mean, Vampire Lovers pushed it too. Like, it almost was like a sudden. There's a couple, and then Vampire Lovers and uh, Vampire Circus were like, nah, we just, you know, we're just going to go for it because we can't compete with this uh, Grindhouse shit coming out. But I think that's literally what happened because it was just like a switch. It wasn't even, it wasn't like I, a warm 
warm-up or anything. <laughs> I mean, there like... was a couple warm-ups, but I expected a gradual when I started right. this. And then it was, boom, Vampire Lovers, and I was like, what? And then Vampire Circus, and I was like, I, I'm very familiar with this movie. I thought there'd be more of a, you know, thing going on, but mm-hmm. no, um, like I said, and the Count put a curse on them to kill their children. And he needs to, the vampires are all related in the circus. They all kind of have different powers and they're kind of all like somewhat of a freaky kind of something wicked this way comes like group of villains. Yeah. And and they all have to, you know, um, kill the children to bring the count back. It seems to be. I I will say I do like um, the fact that the vampires do have different powers. I like like that. The twins, there's one that turns into a panther. Um, the strong man and the, the the dwarf or the midget. They're yeah. not really... I think the strong man might have some powers. Yeah, I, I feel like... The, they're well, just human-like kind of um, familiars. Yeah, I was wondering if they were familiars. Um, obviously, the, the ringleader, um, the gypsy. I think call her a gypsy. Yeah, but I, I, we don't spoil that. Or, but she has another yeah, identity as well. Yeah, I don't want to spoil well. that, but you um, know, she has some powers. Um yeah, they definitely all seem to have some sort of powers. But there's lots of cool, like, tricks, and they capture the town because the town has been so isolated. They're, like, um, they're they're bored, and they need some enlightenment. They need happiness. So they, like, kind of embrace the circus, but they're also leery of the circus because they're a very superstitious group of people because obviously what happened with the Count. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of that going on. Well, it's, it's the kids that like the circus. Yeah, and, and their the parents are, are like, iffy. Ugh. Well, it has that great House of Mirrors stuff, mm-hmm. and I love when movies play with mirrors. It's, like, one of my favorite things. Like, Poltergeist 3 is my favorite because of all the mirror trickery and shit. And that movie, The Evil Within, terrified because of the mirrors. But uh, the reflections, screwing with the reflections in the House of Mirrors is just perfect. And I also have a thing for twins. So when they have the, the villain twins that are, like, connected more than, you know, they're, they're just great. I love the twins. They're just a, a very weird and androgynous and, like, always together and connected by their heart, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, by, I, I don't want to spoil too much, but there's a murder scene that the twins do, which is probably one of my favorite horror murders in any movie. It's really atmospheric and creepy and just absolutely terrifying. And, like, the set comes to life and everything. Like like I said, this is probably my favorite Hammer movie. I can't really hide it. And I, I think this one inspired stuff like Fright Night more than so many of the other vampire oh, films yeah. before. I, I think Hammer directly sure. inspired Fright Night. I know Universal, but I feel like it's more Hammer. And this one, in particular, with the ragtag group of vampires, more so maybe Fright Night 2 even, because we have all those different characters, but I feel like they kind of took that here. Like, they're a vampire, but they all kind of do different things and everything like that. Who's the uh, the Doctor's son? Oh, he's from Deep End. <coughs> he was in the movie Deep End, that, yeah. that really kind of weird kind of coming-of-age British thriller that's kind of nasty, too. And he was in that. <laughs> you hate how he looks? Because his he nose? He looks creepy. He looks like... like... I don't trust him. Yeah, and I didn't like him in Deep End. You're not supposed to like him in Deep End. Yeah, and then I'm watching this and I'm like, I don't trust that kid. Deep End is like, I was nice to you, have sex with me. Right, That's basically Deep End. Uh, And then if you don't, this is going to end badly. Um, Yeah, man, like I said, I love the, uh, the, the... scenery in this too i love that they're surrounded by a plague and everything like that mm-hmm. and, the, and uh the idea of the, i'm going to kill your children for revenge is nightmare on elm street before nightmare oh, yeah. on elm street and that's i know it's been done before but that's just a terrifying premise in itself that they're going to kill your children instead of kill you because mm-hmm. after a certain point you really don't give a shit what happens to you you just worry that you're going to get people you care about in trouble i think <laughs> at certain points so i don't know the the villains are great um and uh, Thorley Walters has a great scene in here when he goes in the House of Mirrors. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's violent. The way they kill a lot of these people. There's a high body count in this, too. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I, I, I do like the midget clown. <laughs> I think that he, he has a lot of characters. He has some funny scenes. Some and he does the great introduction, which is the hammer of House of Horrors. For mm-hmm. those who are uh, who can walk in the House of Mirrors, I love that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I can't say anything negative. I, just, I know some of the uh, post effects weren't completed with the bats, and that looks kind of corny and everything like that. But Yeah, I mean, there's some, you know... I have a hard time like commenting on like effects, especially... From 72. Yeah, because it's like... Eh. They cut the... This guy went over budget. He went over time and everything. Mm-hmm. And they just said, nope, we're not going to finish it. Fuck you. And that's that's how Hammer was. And I, I know some people are like, eh, this one's kind of a failure. But I don't think you guys... Like, a lot of people are like, yes, I want to see the same 30 fucking movies over and over again. Right. I don't. I, I They're okay and they're decent. I know that worked for Universal and I love a lot of those, but I really don't want to see that. They do it with Hammer a lot of times. It's the same story over and over again and it gets old. They get forgettable. You're not going to forget Vampire Circus. Right, it's right. It's completely different. You know, you have like, like when you look at Hammer, you have your like family psychology thrillers. It's like... Psycho I, ripoffs. Yeah, like I, they, they all ran together for me. Um, the science fiction kind of stood out. but Science like, fiction is unique here. It's like the powerful. Frankensteins, the Draculas, the Mummies. I'm like... Even the Gorgon and the Reptile were more or less kind of the same thing going on. I mean, some of them stand out. Um, Some of the Frankensteins take some big chances. Yeah. While some of the um, they swing for the the Frankensteins kind of seem to swing for the fences, and either Mm -hmm. they fail or they do great. But when they when they well, not all of them swing for the fences. When they swing for the fences, they're usually really good. Yeah. When they don't, they're really poor. Right. You know what I mean? And with the Dracula ones, they just seem to get when they embrace the campiness, they get great. I feel like the Draculas just run together for me. Yeah, they've run together. But, like, some of them stand out. Mm-hmm. Well, this one is, like, probably the most unique of the vampire movies, I think. That right. vampire lover so far. Yeah, and I'd say that, that these two really don't feel like Hammer movies. I mean, they do. I Like, I, you still recognize some of the same set elements. You still see, you know, the same cast of characters. <laughs> but, I, but I can imagine that at, at this point when these two came out, they're like, some of the like uh, older like people that went to see the Hammer movies, like they're like, oh my god, right. like monocle falling out of eye shit. Or they were like the husbands who were like, this is appalling, right? And he's like, mm. <laughs> you know, um, there's that dance sequence where they have that whole like sexual dance sequence with the mm-hmm. snake lady, and she's wearing a merkin, but like I don't know, she like goes up and it's just like, Ooh, not really a point to wear the merkin because I right. can see everything anyways. Mm-hmm. So it's like what, and it's like shaved, so it's like that's. I guess more graphic than I expected. Like, I don't know. This has got to be, this and Vampire Lovers have pretty much. These are, are probably the most, like, like in terms of nudity, the most graphic. Yeah. Um, I don't think that these ones are particularly violent. Oh, yeah. They're gory. I mean, they're gory. A man is set on fire. Yeah. Remember what happens to the the dwarf? <laughs> I laugh every, I don't know I'm sick but the way they, they frame it and everything it's like a reverse shot right but like I don't know I, I, I mean I guess when I, when I say violent I don't know like violence is really weird with me like I don't think that very graphic gore like does anything for me but like some of the stuff like in um like Catermass 2 like them like melting like and you don't even see it, but to me that kind of freaked me out more than um, the some of the stuff we've seen in this. But violence and gore are not the same thing. Yeah, that's true. Like, uh, like Wild Bunch is very violent. It has gore, but it's not super gory. I mean, right. in, in today's terms, but it's violent. Terminator is very violent. It's not mm-hmm. overly gory, but it's violent. The Hitcher, that those are violent. Shooting, shooting, killing, yelling, screaming. Right. Henry's violent, but not gory. 
Is it yeah, violent I don't, I don't think that this one is a very violent movie. I think it's gory. It's gory. It's got some yeah. gore. It's know. got gore. Just a little bit, you know. Yeah. Vampire gore. But I love it. Uh, uh, I'm gonna rate it a nine out of ten, maybe even higher. Four out of five. Okay, here we go. Um, this is in the. It's not in van, uh, video uh, tear on tape, but it is in John Stanley's creature features. And where are we at here? Okay, uh, Vampire Circus, 1972, three out of five star, three ring hammer midway of horror, set in 1810 Serbia in a village wracked by a, by plague. Paying a visit to the community is a big top with low entertainers. Vampires and other types capable of transmutation into animals and grotesque night creatures. The owner of the circus, a vampire himself, is seeking revenge against those who murdered his cousin. Graphically gory in the Hammer tradition, directed by Robert Young. Oh, and it has Adrian Corey, uh, Thorley Walters, David Prose. Which is cool because Adrian Corey was actually in uh, Clockwork Orange. Oh she yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. That's so, right. That's where I recognized her from. She looked familiar. Uh, yeah, I, I really like this one. Next week is Countess Dracula, and I hear iffy things about this one. Is this... Ingrid Pitt's in it. Okay. Not a Karstein trilogy. Oh, it's not? No. Okay. Countess Dracula. So, um, like I said, I love this one. I feel like the circus is underutilized in horror movies, and I feel like this movie is a good monster mash. Because they're, they're not, they're all vampires, but they're different types, so they feel like right. different kind of characters. And very rarely are the, the, um... More than one monster in a Hammer movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have the Dracula Brides, but more than one type of monster. This is about as most monster mash as you can get in a Hammer movie. That we've seen so far. I don't, I don't think there is multiple. I don't think there are going to be multiples. But... Like, I was hoping we get, you know, I wish they would have done the cross universe like Universal did. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Reptile versus the Gorgon. <laughs> I mean, when you have your entire staff as in every single movie i think it is hard to well the universal ones are like that too i mean bella lugosi played yeah frankenstein and he was in the wolfman well who played the wolfman in the crossovers he was in the wolfman he never played the wolfman lon cheney jr always played the wolfman in the universals he never no one was not oh yeah no bella lugosi was the um yeah he was the gypsy the gypsy guy yeah. yeah so i mean like yeah they use the same guys they popped up all the time and then there's other people too that were smaller roles but and then even people filled in for dracula bella goes only played dracula twice so i mean like it's not unfeasible really what's Pe- what's peter cushion gonna play is he gonna play van helsing or um, um he's gotta play the baron the baron yeah he can't he can't play um man because then how are you gonna have van helsing kill all these creatures of the night if i mean Peter Cushing's so young. He's such a young whippersnapper. Yeah, he should be able to play both Young, roles. strong, athletic man. Yeah. He's such a young man. It. It'd yeah. be a shame if something happened to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I say that, he's such a young man. He's like 60 in the Mummy movies. <laughs> but anyways, uh, love it. Uh, next week, Countess Dracula. You good on this? I'm sure. Yeah, I'm fine. For all who are willing to pay the price, we invite you to go through the mirror of life. Fifteen years ago, we thought we'd killed a demon, but he's been waiting to kill us.
kill us. Fifteen years, cousin Metaros. But now we are here to free you. To give you life. But must they all die? All! guys let's hop into these questions dan the cameraman listening to recent episodes i've noticed you mentioned various indie horror kickstarters indiegogos is there one currently going on you'd like to mention so we can donate to right now i'm not sure if there is but there'll be a couple coming up uh one from dustin mills that i will be sure to point you out um i'm in that one um and i had a great time it was filmed like a few years back so yeah uh I'll, i'll point that one out and there is another one that not an Indiegogo, he just had one, but the movie should be released within this year called Feaster Sunday that I just had a little small role in that should be fun. So I can't think of any Indiegogos, but from now on, if I see one that um, you know uh, interests me or I know some of the people involved and I think it's going to be a good product or a decent product, I will share it. So uh, yeah, not one right now, not off the top of my head. What's your favorite cut of Dawn of the Dead? The extended, followed by the theatrical, uh, followed by the Euro cut, I think. What's a good memory you've had meeting a celebrity at a convention? Oh, I've met a bunch, and I've never had really a terrible experience. Um, I'm trying to think of one of my best. Um, Meeting Fred Vogel, because I actually became kind of like friends with him, and it was in one of his movies and stuff like that. would hang out with him every time I go. So that's a good experience, but um, let me think of a couple others. Meeting David Hess was cool, even though it was very brief. Michael Berryman was very nice. He was a very nice guy. Um... So that was, but I got to meet George Romero, and uh, you know that was pretty much a highlight of my life. So uh, probably George Romero, even though it was just very briefly. I wish, and I wish I would have like went further into it. But I, 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 I just told him that he was an idol of mine, and uh, you know, I said you probably hear this all the time. You're an idol of mine, but he said, yeah, you can never hear that too much, and kind of like just laughed and everything it was nice. But you know, I wish I would have you know prepared something a little bit better. Because he's pretty much my favorite director, my favorite hero. He's one of the only one people that I kind of idolized. So, uh, Nick Mua, what did you think about Ricky Gervais' speech, a monologue at the Globes? Did he finally go too far? No, you know, I'm not familiar with the guy as far as like his comedic act or anything like that. And I didn't really care about the Golden Globes. I always say Golden Globe now because that movie. But Golden Globes. 
So um, I do know that um, amongst a lot of people that I know or just everyday people, they're tied to celebrities telling them their political opinion. They're like, hey, you shouldn't use your power to say that or sports athletes, yada, yada, yada. And I can understand that to a certain extent. They're like, they don't know nothing about politics. And then they'll spout out their politics like they know more about it. So it's all like hypocrisy anyways. But I understand the point that people don't like people that think they're better than them telling them what to do. If it's politicians, if it's celebrities, if it's athletes, yada, yada, yada. People with have special privileges telling you what's better for your life. It gets annoying, whatever they're telling you, either way. You know, I understand that to a certain extent. Do I think that um, in a certain way, I think that that made a lot of people happy to see it because it's somebody from, I guess they would consider the Hollywood elite, telling the Hollywood elite that not everyone is like that. And I think that, you know, a lot of people in Hollywood get like typecasted into that, you know, that group that, oh, here, but they're not like a lot of people just want to get their awards. They don't, they know, they think there's a time and place for that. I don't hate celebrities that do it. I don't love celebrities that do it. Sometimes I think they go too far with it. Sometimes I don't care, but for all in all, I really don't care if I don't like what they have to say. It doesn't change how their performance was for me. Um, I don't have to watch them, you know, and, uh, I don't, I don't know if he went too far. It seemed like he really didn't care. I don't know if that's an act or not, but it seemed like he probably wanted to stop doing these. So maybe he went too far on purpose, but, um, th- that's true. They're on uh, the, a couple of those things he said, I agree with, you know, the Marvel people are definitely on steroids. You don't get that in good shape for three months. You know I mean? <laughs> Without taking steroids. So, uh, I mean that big, it's the mass. It's not the ripness. It's the mass. Um, and other things like that too. Um, so, um, why do you think people are so easy to forgive, forget when a celebrity crosses the line or breaks the law? I don't think they are actually. I think that we have a cancel, um, kind of culture now. Um, sometimes people do things that are unforgivable that they shouldn't be. But like I said, I don't think that a lot of them are easily forgivable. Occasionally people get away with it. Some people can get away with anything. And while other people, if they're decent their whole lives and do one bad thing, they're done, they're canceled. And I'm not saying beating somebody up or something. You know what I mean? Certain circumstances, yeah, go away. You're bad. Like um, Kevin Spacey or um, uh, Weinstein, those people, they need to go because they've done unspeakable things to multiple people. Uh, But sometimes if you just slip up on Twitter and say something stupid, you're canceled. And, you know, everybody makes mistakes, okay? Uh, so I don't know. I, I do. I don't think that it's easy to be forgiven. Something back in the day, I do. I think they swept that under the rug and we never knew anything about it. But now I think with the internet and the, and the media so prevalent everywhere, 24 hour news cycle, we hear everything and it's, you know, so it's boom right there. I don't think it, I don't think they are. I think some are, but most aren't. Uh, by your, by your singing voice is decent. I've heard a lot worse from so-called professional singers, especially when they're singing live. You, sir, are a suck up. I am terrible. Okay, we have answers here. I said, uh, what movies make you hungry? And uh, Mr. Tony the Dead said, I have this thing. I have to eat vanilla sandwiches, cookies, whenever I watch Dawn of the Dead. Uh, Captain Telzar from Twitter says, uh, Big Night for sure. Tipsy Land says, Raw, LOL. Timo Wald says, Peter Jackson's brain dead. Ha ha. Then we have Nick Mua. Films that have always made me a bit peckish. The fantasy scene in Spielberg's Hook. Red Dragon. Hannibal eating while smocking Dr. Chip Tun. Uh, Chitlin? Is it Chit Tun? I don't remember that guy's name in the movie. and I don't. Uh, at the same time, The Cook. The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, of course. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Lastly, Beetlejuice. Uh, Andrew DMB. Oh, yeah. And the movies that made me hungry or make me hungry. Well, I do have to say I never watch cooking shows for that reason. It'll just make me hungry and then angry because all I have to <laughs> I have to eat are Pop-Tarts. But movies, here we go. Chef with uh, John uh, 
Favreau, and Burnt with Bradley Cooper. I think only real food-based movies that I've seen. But TV-wise, and I know this may sound sick to many people, but the show Hannibal. I don't know. He just always made some crazy gourmet shit that looks so good. Def can't put down his cooking skills. That's cooking skills. That's for sure. But to most, but to know most of it, not all of it came from human. It's def a little more than upsetting, upsetting weird shit. But I'm telling you, if you've ever seen the series, let me know your thoughts on that. And also let me know in each video how you decide what particular question to ask. I'm curious. Um, anyway, Dave Rambling, I just randomly come up with it. Sometimes this one, um, it's kind of a, I don't know, the, this question of the week, I guess I just thought of. I think of them when I'm writing up my outline. And sometimes I change before that or not. Um, then we have Ilk Vomit. Great question of the week. As I just finished rewatching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Use. I swear if you're not hungry for pizza, within the first two minutes of the opening of that movie, you legit must not have a soul. Uh, Zach, no one? I feel compelled to give an old answer. ACDC? Oh, he's basically saying, I think um, his favorite uh, movie-related songs. ACDC, Who Made Who? Max Overdrive. I thought 100 people were going to name that one. I always have dinner or watching South Park. I think something about Cartman makes me hungry. Front Desk Matt? One of my top 10 movies always makes me hungry. Defending Your Life. One of the plot points of Judgment City is that you can eat all you want. Has no physical effect. Don't gain. Wait. All the meal scenes they talk about makes me hungry every time. Viva Rose 1978. Great review. Okay, this is going to sound weird. Nightmare City is one of my favorite movies. For some reason, I find myself extremely hungry after watching it. No idea why at all. Good to see you back in the new year. Keep your beard. Keep that beard growing. What beard? Uh, Claire Bear, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate factor Factory makes me rumbly in my tumbly. And even though the food looks gross and good burger, I always want fast food after I watch it. Stan Moreland, Willy Wonka, Dustin uh, Morovic, Street Trash, David Gibson, Necromaniac. Ugh. You know what makes you real... S Lucker the Necrophis, that or Necrophagus, or whatever the hell it is, that movie makes me want to throw up. Lindsay uh, Denenberg, The Sword and the Stone, Justin Burning Hook, Julie and Julia, Chef and Goodfellas, uh, Michael Sollers, uh, first few minutes of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 with the pizza-eating montage, uh, Marco Vitnian, a Serbian film, stop it, and then uh, Watson post underneath, you give me a give me a triple feature Serbian film, Night Train Murders, and Psycho 98, and I'm having a feast, Limp Biscuit represent y'all, I hope it's a piece, a feast of poison. Then we have a Jeremy Connor, Simply Irresistible. Uh, Damon uh, Mikakane, uh, Salo, Jack Pollins, uh, Tempopo, and Babette's Feast. Angela Jane Nagy, Feed. Ugh, Feed. Uh, Ariel Payne, Real Talk, the, st the Stuff Makes Me Want Marshmallows. And then uh, Nagny also mentioned Sweet Movie, which makes me want to throw up. Kenny Bates, Requiem for a Dream or Evil Ed. Scott Shermer, I had a videotape for Hungry. I'm not even going to repeat this, Scott. This is a PG-13 show. I'm not repeating what Scott Shermer wrote. Uh, Kyle Anthony Rayburn, Nothing But Trouble. Amy Fox Goodwin, Spirited Away. Uh, Chef Julie and Julia Amelie. Corey Zunk, Any Marvel Movie. Must Watch with Popcorn and Coke. Carrie Fisher, and then she replies to Corey, I'm more of a popcorn and tall glass and milk kind of gal. Is that odd? Sounds odd when I say it out loud. And Nathan Erdell, Cannibal Holocaust. Timothy uh, Callen, Soylent Green is Delicious. Will Car Cardinal, Do the Right Thing. Ryan Matthew Ziegler, She Devil, Donuts. Kaiser Souza, Chef. Marine Kern Fairbairn, Matilda Makes Me Want a Large Milk. Lee Bishop, Hannibal. Um, Andrew McLeod, Chef. Timothy Callen, Crystal Lake. 
uh, Tracy McFace, uh, Mizaki Films, always. Jeremy Freeman, Snowtown Murders, because all they do is eat. Jason Lindbergh, Super Size Me, Body Melt, Poultry Guys. Uh, Jordan Bibby, Troll 2. Got a lot this time. Uh, Jeff Pinnell, uh, Timpopo. Glenn D. Worthington, Ravenous. There it is. Rebecca Reinhardt, The Stuff. Always makes me want to eat marshmallow fluff. David Luton, Goodfellas. All those Italian meals being cooked up. And then J. Alexis, he mentions he had a wonderful system in uh, Goodfellas. Shariah Salkill, um, Hook. Uh, Ned Christensen, The Stuff and Nothing But Trouble. He says, I crave ice cream and hot dogs while watching these movies. And then uh, Shane Glass, I Love Nothing But Trouble. Jeff Burr, The Beginning of They Call Me Trinity. Daniel Richardson, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Use. Emil Johansson, Honestly Supersize Me. Michael Sanat, Harold Kumar, Get the Munchies, White Castle. Uh, Carly uh, Sonnenfeld, also agrees. Uh, Moods Fruit, Your Thumbnails. Hmm. <laughs> Brian Sattler, Feed, haha. Uh, Tom Brunner, Willy Wonka the Chocolate Factory, Corey Reister, Teeth. Uh, Peter England, my name is Trinity. The beans were not much good anyway. And he says, and the good, the bad, and the ugly, breakfast with angel eyes. Uh, Jeremy Cortez, Willy Wonka, the Chocolate Factory, and Debbie Does Dallas. Dustin Mills, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, makes me want pizza. Chris ben- Bennett, water power. Stop it. Brandon Salkill, death proof. It's those messy, delicious nachos. David M. Simbot, um, or Simbun, Blood Diner. Mike Parker, Hook. And we have a couple more. Shajin Barbarian, Bloodsucking Freaks. There's something about a cold uh, cock sandwich that makes my tummy rumble. And Barry O'Connell, nine and a half weeks. Ah. Then we have a question of the week. I want to know the most embarrassing correction you've ever had when it comes to movies. Like, have you ever been like, that's directed by so-and-so? And it's like, no, that's directed by so-and-so, you idiot. Have you ever made, like, such a bad uh, mistake? And what's the, um, so what's the biggest mistake you've made? And what's the biggest correction you've had? You know, basically when you're talking about movies. So what's the biggest mistake you've had? Like, when you made up on accident. Jeez, I'm, let me rephrase this question, guys. Most embarrassing correction you've ever had when it comes to movies. Like, for example, one time I uh, thought uh, Debbie Mazar was a Frizuka Bulk when I was drunk. Stuff like that. So um, I guess we're going to hop into the update. Okay, this one's about to be super quick. First, we got Bloodstalkers, uh, early 70s horror movie. Never seen it. Um, this is Garage House Pictures. I've heard about it for years. I think I actually have a bootleg. But, yeah, cool. I feel like Garage House is putting out a lot of stuff that no one else would even touch. So that's the uh, VHS image I remember right there. So yeah, it's got some special features on there. Cool stuff. And then next we got triple feature was Dirt Cheap. Um, Friday the 13th remake, The Killer Cut, Nightmare on Elm Street remake, and Friday vs. Jason. I have a lot of uh, the series on Blu-rays, except I don't have these ones. So for 10 bucks, I you know, I like Freddy vs. Jason. I was... Kind of iffy on the Friday the 13th remake and Nightmare on Elm Street remake I didn't finish. But still, I know I want to eventually finish these damn movies. So, yeah, there we go. And then last DVD, we have Video Man. This is one of my favorite movies of 2019. So check this one out. Uh, it's very funny. I believe it's a Swedish movie. If you, if you like horror movies, it definitely um, plays to the fans of these kind of movies. So, yeah, great stuff. Very, very funny. Very, very fun and just... Actually touching as well. So, yeah, back to the video. All right, guys, thank you very much for watching. And as always, you guys have a good one. Hey.